If you have your Bibles, grab them. First Corinthians, chapter ten, eleven, chapter eleven. And would you please stand out, reverence for the reading of God's word. First Corinthians, chapter eleven, verse two through sixteen. Now. I commend you because you remember me in everything and maintain the traditions even as I delivered them to you. But I want you to understand that the head of every man is Christ. The head of a wife is her husband and the head of Christ is God. Every man who prays or prophesies with his head covered dishonors his head, but every wife who prays or prophesies with her head uncovered, dishonors her head, since it is the same as if her head were shaven. For if a wife will not cover her head, then she should cut her hair short. But since it is disgraceful for a wife to cut off her hair or shave her head, let her cover her head. For a man ought not to cover his head, since he is the image and glory of God, but woman is the glory of man. For man was not made from woman, but woman from man. Neither was man created for woman, but woman for man. That is why a wife ought to have a symbol of authority on her head, because of the angels. Nevertheless, in the Lord, woman is not independent of man, nor man of woman. For as woman was made from man, so man is now born of woman. And all things are from God. Judge for yourselves. Is it proper for a wife to pray to God with her head uncovered? Does not nature itself teach you that if a man wears long hair, it is a disgrace for him? But if a woman has long hair, it is her glory? For her hair is given to her for a covering. If anyone is inclined to be contentious, we have no such practice nor do the churches of God. This is the word of the Lord. Well, I'm excited to get back to uh, 1 Corinthians. Uh, Ryan did an excellent job last week in chapter 10. Um, 1 Corinthians is broken into what I think are five sections. Uh, Chapters 1 through 4 are divisions in the church. 5 through 7 are answering questions about sex and singleness. 8 through 10 are navigating controversies like meat sacrifice to idols. And now in 11 through 14, they are about corporate worship wars. Though their worship wars were a lot different than ours, they're, not, they're, mu- they're much heavier, more theological than a battle over whether do we sing hymns or new music. And more to do with should a woman cover her head in church. I can almost guarantee you that most of you have never heard a sermon preached on this passage. As we read it, some of you were like, oh gosh, here we go. And and that's because who in their right mind plans a series and thinks, man, you know what this church needs? A sermon about head coverings for women. No one thinks that. Uh, But because it is a priority for us to primarily preach through books of the Bible, it forces us to not skip things. It forces us to deal with and teach and explain and walk through difficult, weird passages like this one instead of ignoring them. 
We should not ignore such passages because this chapter is as much the word of God given to us for our good and our instruction as is, say, a Romans chapter 8 in all its glory. God gave us this chapter as well for our sanctification, our growth, and for faithful living. And so we should take the time and the care to understand it and apply it. We must not be a church that cherry-picks verses, but rather preaches the whole counsel of God. Okay, okay. So here we go. My best friend Brady Martin, who uh, you have met, he preached here. Ryan, how long have you been married? Oh, I, I, I mean, I'm sorry. I, Darcy wasn't there. A year and a half. So a year and a half ago, Brady was here and he preached uh, for you. So you met him. He did, Ryan, and Darcy's wedding. Um, <laughs> sorry. I didn't. <laughs> you're going to get in trouble. Uh, uh, <laughs> Yikes. So, but Brady was here about a year and a half ago. Uh, he preached, so you know him. But he grew up in a missionary Baptist church, which, if you don't know, is like super fundamentalist, uh, super legalistic, uh, and, and, you know, the type of church where, you know, women can't wear pants. But uh, some of the youth had been uh, coming, these girls had been coming wearing pants, and they had a business meeting, and this woman stands up in the business meeting and begins to, to rant and to rave about these ungodly young women who are wearing pants in the church house, dishonoring God and dishonoring themselves, and we got to get back to the scriptures and faithful living where women wear dresses and don't wear pants. And Brady, who was 16 at the time, full of youthful zeal and vigor, stands up and he, and he says, where is that in the Bible? And she says, I don't know, but I know it's in there somewhere. <laughs> it's not. There are a lot of church traditions that are not in the Bible. And yet, churches can and have hold to things that are not commands from God. But then we come across a passage like this, this one in 1 Corinthians 11, where we see this, this what seems to be a clear command to, uh, that women ought to cover their head or have long hair, and men shouldn't have long hair and all these things. And, and that's something we don't really see today, right? Like, unless you're, you go off into Amish country or you see a Mennonite person uh, around, you really don't see women wearing head coverings today. And so are, are we just, are kind of we all wrong? Or, uh, do we need to bring them back? Uh, are we ignoring the scriptures? You know, sometimes people will look at a passage like this and go, oh, you know, it's just cultural. And kind of then dismiss the whole thing because it's cultural. Uh, and kind of use that as an excuse to get out of it. This morning, my goal is to answer for you some questions. Some questions from this text about what, what does male headship mean? Uh, what, what, are the, what is the deal of these head coverings for women? And in so doing, show you how we come to a passage like this Read it and interpret it accurately and not just for our liking. Passages like this one uh, have also been used, obviously incorrectly, uh, to force women into a sort of subjugation to men uh, that's obviously not right or biblical. And so us learning to not ignore passages like this, but interpreting them rightly and dealing with them justly help us to faithfully understand God's word so we can not only apply it rightly, but also know when other people are applying it wrongly, right? So that we can kind of call out when it's being used wrongly to manipulate or put down women. So that said, let's jump in. Verse 3, let me remind you, says, But I want you to understand that the head of every man is Christ. The head of a wife is her husband, and the head of Christ is God. 
And then verses 8 and 9 say, For man was not made from woman, but woman from man. And neither was man created for woman, but woman for man. First question I want to answer, what does male headship mean? A lot of that's in here. Another place about what, what does male headship mean? Now, this question makes us 21st century readers a little nervous, right? Because we're about equality and rights and equal opportunity and freedom. But let me, let me say anything that the Bible might even slightly push against our modern sensibilities is okay. And we want to be a people who are not beholden to worldly philosophy or understanding. We are not captured by the swinging pendulum of culture back and forth. But rather we hold to the timeless authority of the word of God. And so when we read that a husband is the head of his wife, we need to make sure we rightly understand what that means. Not be nervous about it. Because if God said it, that means it's for our good, our flourishing. uh, For both men and women. And so let's understand rightly and biblically what that means. And let's not take it further than the scriptures take it. And let's not stop short of what the scriptures say either. So what does it mean that the husband is the head of his wife? Well, the Greek word for head can, can mean one of two things. Uh, it can mean like the head of something, like head of state, head of the staff. Or it can mean like source, like the headwaters. But it really seems pretty clear from the context that Paul kind of has both meanings in mind. According to Genesis 2, as he references here in verse 8 and 9, Eve was created out of man, which means he is her source. And that order has some implications. Notice that the appeal is to the created order and not the culture. We're going to get more to that in a minute. But this is not a cultural thing. This is how God ordered the world. Adam is created first. Eve was created from him as his helper. And Paul uses the same language of headship in Ephesians chapter 5 when he says, Wives, submit to your husbands as to the Lord, because the husband is the head of the wife as Christ is the head of the church. So headship implies both the source of woman, but also this level of authority over her. But now we also want to be really clear that men and women are equal in essence. Even if you go back to Genesis, we see that they're both created in the image of God. Uh, In verse 12, we see for woman was made for man, and so man is now born of woman, right? So there's an order there. We see that both Adam and Eve are creating the image of God. We see that Eve is his helper, and that helper role is not an inferior role. It's not a sidekick role, and we know that because God uses that same Hebrew word for helper to describe himself several times in the Old Testament. And God's certainly not inferior to anything. We see that Jesus always submits to the Father, and we surely wouldn't say that Jesus is inferior to the Father, but equal in all ways, though his role and function is different than the Father's. And so male headship does not imply the inferiority of women. Women are image bearers of God, equal to men in every possible way. Though we see different roles for men and women in the home and in the church. So here's a good definition if you want to write this down. Scripture makes two claims first. First, men and women are equal image bearers worthy of equal honor and value. Second, that men and women hold different roles with men exercising a headship or authority in the church and in the home. Leave that up for a minute. That's kind of long. If you want to know the theological term that we use to talk about this, it's complementarianism, which means men and women are equal in their essence. They're equal in in, in, in who they are as people, but their roles and functions are different, and their roles and functions complement one another. 
Men and women are like two puzzle pieces who, when joined together, more completely and fully picture and image God. I think it would be helpful to talk about what this headship of, of this, this male authority is not. So what I want to do is, is kind of give you some sub-points here about what I'm not saying, what this isn't. All right, because our minds, when we, when we hear this, our minds can go to a lot of wrong places, and this has been used and applied wrongly and throughout the years. So the first one I want you to, to, to not miss is this. Male headship does not mean the inferiority of women. Male headship does not mean the inferiority of women. When Paul says women, woman is the glory of man, Paul is not demeaning her. Rather, he's saying she was created as this glorious complement to him. We even see in Genesis 2, when Moses describes the creation of Adam and Eve, when he talks about Adam, he just uses kind of this generic Hebrew word, bara, just means to create, to describe the creation of Adam. But when he describes the creation of Eve, it's bana, which is to fashion or design, right? It's almost like Adam was kind of created generically, but he spent a lot more time on Eve to make her beautiful. Or you can think about it this way. The apple, is, the apple is the glory of the apple tree. The tree is the source of the apple, so which is better? The apple or the apple tree? Well, neither. But apples should not act like trees, and trees should not act like apples. They're both good, they're both useful, but they have a unique relationship with one another that is good and right and should not be muddled. To muddle this relationship is to say that God's design is not good. The second thing that this is not is male headship is not, woman, get me my chips. The ball game's on. Sometimes we have seen, y'all like that one? That's pretty pretty. Sometimes we see that headship is abused as a means to force a wife into a role of servitude. The football game is on, you go take care of those kids and get me my sandwich. So I can watch the game. I expect her to do everything when I say it, but that, that's not what headship means. You see, while the wife's command is to submit to her husband, the husband's command is far harder. Because the husband is commanded to die. The husband is commanded to lay down his life for his wife. A husband should be getting up every single morning and ask, how might I die to myself today for the building up, serving, and prospering of my wife and family? How do I put her first today? How do I suffer so that she might thrive? See, the headship or authority that a husband has is not an authority to get what I want. It is an authority to help our wives and families flourish. Headship is not, woman, get me my chips, the game is on. Headship is authority with accountability. It is my job as a husband to ensure my wife is cared for, is served, is growing spiritually, is protected. When Eve eats the fruit in the garden and the world is thrown into sin, do you know who the Bible blames over and over again? Not Eve. No, the Bible blames Adam. Because Adam is standing behind her passively, not intervening, not speaking up, not leading. He fails his headship. He fails to lead her because he doesn't protect her from the whispers and the lies of the serpent. In many ways, headship is accountability. Because you are the responsible party, husbands, to ensure that your marriage is thriving, your kids are thriving, 
the, at the end of the day, when, when the Lord looks at you and your family, it is the husband who will be held accountable. See, male headship does not imply independent decision-making. Nowhere in the Bible does it say men make all the decisions and women don't. In fact, having women speak into things would be an incredibly wise, prudent, helpful, necessary thing. Because God wired men and women differently. We are not the same. And women image God just as men do, but they image a part of God that men don't. In fact, the Bible, God refers to himself uh, often in, in ways that describe himself as even motherly. In Isaiah, he says that he was more attentive to his children than a doting mother. In Matthew, he cares for his prodigal children, Israel, like a broken-hearted mother longing to scoop them up in his arms. He uses the same word for helper, like I said, to, that describes Eve, to describe himself. And so woman image is the part of God that men don't. And so we need men and women together to make fully formed, wise decisions in the home and in the church. And so headship does not mean... Women don't make any decisions. It just means that in the home, when there's a tie, the man bears the weight of the final decision. And he does so dying to himself, dying to his wants, dying to his needs, caring more for his wife and his family. Tim Keller, the, uh, the late now Tim Keller, uh, wrote one of the best books on marriage that I've ever read called The Meaning of Marriage. Tim Keller planted one of the most successful, flourishing, thriving churches in New York City. Uh, but, when, but looking back, he tells the story that he was feeling called to, to move out of the country where he was into the city to plant this church. And he and his wife Kathy had been praying about it and thinking about it. And, it was, and he was a yes, let's go do it. And she was a no. She didn't want to go. She didn't want to do it. And when it came down to make the final decision, he conceded and he said, well, if you don't want to go, we won't go. And his wife Kathy said, oh, no, you don't, you coward. You are not making me bear the weight of this decision. You have to make it. Don't blame it on me. He had to make the decision. He had to pray. He had to hear from God. He had to hear from his wife. And he had to decide what was God calling them to do and what was best for their family. The weight of that decision fall, fell on him. Headship in the home doesn't mean husbands make every little decision. It means really these two things. That he is accountable for everything that happens within the family. And in big decisions when there is no consensus, the weight of the final decision falls on him. That's what male headship means in the home. Male headship takes place only in two places. In the home and in the church. In the church... The headship of men means that men alone bear the weight of accepting the office of pastor or elder. Same, same, same office, two different words. But here in 1 Corinthians and in 1 Timothy, Paul makes it abundantly clear that the office of pastor and elder, which is an office of the church focused on teaching and governing and shepherding, sits on the shoulders of qualified men who are above reproach. And that leads me really to my next point, that male headship does not mean that women cannot teach or lead in the church. Male headship does not mean that women cannot teach or lead in the church. In verse 5, we see that Paul is assuming that there are women praying 
And there are women prophesying in the church. Prophesying here has in mind like a teaching or spirit-filled proclamation, which we see many women in the Bible do, right? From, from Mary to Deborah to Priscilla to Phoebe, we see all of these women do this. And so women can teach. They can lead ministries. They can teach Bible classes. They can lead small groups. But when they do it, they do not do it uh, in their own authority or their own capacity, but rather they sit under the authority of the elders, who, the elders who speak on behalf of the church, who lead the church, who shepherd the church. They sit under their authority, teaching uh, under their authority. Because it is the elders' job to protect the church, to teach the church, uh, to shepherd the church. Now, women have access to every spiritual gift that men do, including teaching and leading. And just like really any man who's not an elder who teaches, they also do it under the authority of the elders. You know, I've benefited greatly from the teaching of women Bible teachers. Uh, Jen Wilkin, uh, Nancy Piercy, Paige Brown, Rosaria Butterfield, Rebecca McLaughlin. Not to mention uh, my brilliant biblically-minded wife. Uh, not to mention our brilliant uh, children's minister, Darcy, whose insights weekly challenge me and help me. So many other women in our church who I've learned from. And I would say it this way. Uh, I think this may be a helpful statement. Women can do anything in the church except be an elder. Women can do anything in the church except be a pastor or elder. It is the only office and role or function that is reserved for qualified, above reproach, clearly laid out in Scripture, men. Finally, on this point, let me say this. Male headship in marriage and in the church does not mean women cannot lead in society. I want to be really clear about this because this, is, this has been used wrongly by people. This passage, nor any other, teaches that men in general have authority over women in general. That is not true. Uh, the Bible teaches that husbands have authority over their wives a self-sacrificing authority, a dying to your self-authority, an accountability for their good, and that qualified men alone have authority in the church. That's it. We should never allow or promote a general blanket statement that men somehow have authority over women. That's not biblical. The reason uh, for the head coverings that we're going to talk more about in a minute is to show submission to her husband, not to just men in general. And so we see plenty of women in the Bible leading, having high responsibility. You think about the Proverbs 31 woman. She got, she's a supervisor. And there's, there's nothing unbiblical about a woman being a manager, a supervisor, a CEO, or the president of the United States. So all of that has been in an effort to answer this question. What, what does male headship mean? And my hope is you have seen that, one, male headship happens in two, two places, in the home and in the church. And it's not meant to be abusive or selfish or self-serving, but rather sacrificial and caring and giving and leading and to, for their flourishing, for, for my sacrifice and their flourishing. It's a role given to husbands and pastors by God to shepherd their families and churches. And then they in turn are held accountable before God for how they have led and shepherded and cared and served them. So I hope that kind of answers what headship is and what it's not. The second question I want to answer is, is male headship and head coverings a cultural thing in a patriarchal society? Is this idea of male headship and this idea of this head covering, is this a cultural thing for a patriarchal society? This is something I hear a lot about, a lot of uh, different passages where people will come to these passages and then dismiss them 
uh, not think through them, not, not interpret them, but just say, oh, that's a cultural thing that doesn't apply to us. Let's forget about it. Well, we need to know if that's true or not. Like, we need to know, is this a cultural thing? Does this apply to us? And how do we know and how do we, how do, we do that work? How do we know if it's true or not? And not just dismiss it and blow it off when we might be missing some truth from God's word. Because remember, what we do is we conform to the Bible. We don't conform the Bible to us. So let me show you this concept of male headship in the home of the church is not just a cultural thing. Verses 12 through 15. For as woman was made from man, so man is now born of woman. And all things are from God. Judge for yourself. Is it proper for a wife to pray to God uh, with her head uncovered? Does not nature itself teach you that if a man wears long hair, it is to disgrace, it is a disgrace for him? But if a woman has long hair, it is to her glory. Paul's argument for male headship is not rooted in culture. It is rooted in creation. Paul is saying male headship is true because of how God made men and women differently. And he appeals in verse 14 to nature itself and how the creation itself, natural law, even teaches us these things. Paul does this also in Ephesians 5 where, again, he points to the created order as its pattern for male headship, not contemporary culture. If Paul was talking about cultural issues, he would not point to creation. And these gender distinctions are not a result of sin or the fall because these things Paul references are before the fall, before sin. This is how God designed it to be, in perfection. Unique and equal in essence but different in function. The second reason Paul gives is male headship is modeled after the Trinity. We, reading verse 3, uh, Paul, he says, but I want you to understand that the head of every man is Christ. The head of wife is her husband, and the head of Christ is God. You see, God exists in three persons, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, who are equal in essence, all fully God. But yet there is a hierarchy within the Trinity. The head of Christ is God the Father. Jesus always submits to the Father's will. He says, I've come not to do my will, but the will of the one who sent me. And if it is not demeaning or wrong or outdated for Jesus, who was fully God, to have a head whom he follows, then it is not demeaning or wrong for a wife to have a head who she follows. Headship is not cultural, but, but then, because it appeals to creation, but what about these head coverings? Like, are, are we all sinning because all these women don't have anything on their head? I want to teach you something really important and helpful, I think, about biblical interpretation. Because you can go wrong in one of two ways when interpreting the Bible in a passage like this. You can over-apply it and you can under-apply it. You can over-apply it and under-apply it. Paul and other biblical writers will sometimes teach a timeless principle and then encourage his readers and his first century audience to apply that timeless principle in a culturally appropriate way. What makes sense in their context. And so the first way that you can go wrong is to make the first century cultural expression of the timeless truth normative for all times. Normative for all times and all cultures. Everywhere. That's, that's over-applying. The other way you can go wrong is by failing to extract the timeless truth and dismiss all of what the Bible is saying as cultural, applicable to only that group at that time. That's under-applying. You see, faithful biblical interpretation pulls out the timeless truth, the timeless principle, and applies it to today. So let me, let me use a different biblical example to help illustrate, and then we'll come back. 
A few chapters later in this book, 1 Corinthians 16, 20, Paul ends his letter with the command to greet one another with a holy kiss. It's an imperative. It's a command. Greet one another with a holy kiss. And I didn't see all y'all kissing each other when you walked in today. In those days, kissing each other on the cheek was a sign of friendship and warmth and kindness and a familial greeting. It was like a cool bro hug today, right? If you go to France today, right, they still probably, they still do that. Like other, other cultures today still go and kiss each other on the cheek. But if we took this verse that you are to greet your brother with a holy kiss and, and we did not separate this timeless principle from the cultural application, you might say that we should, if we, if we overapply it, we're going to say everyone needs to be kissing everybody every time you see each other. You see somebody in Walmart, oh, come here, I got to greet you with a kiss. Come pucker up. Right? And we, some of y'all be freaking out. I'm done with this thing. Everybody's kissing everybody. It'd be weird. And that's over-applying it. But if we under-apply it, we might miss a command from God that is here, that is the timeless truth. You, know, you, you could say, no, that, that's a cultural issue. We don't do that anymore. And so you throw out the whole passage. And we miss that timeless truth. The timeless truth being that you should greet your brothers and sisters in Christ with warmth and tenderness and greet them as family. That's a timeless principle that we can keep. We keep that, but the cultural expression, how we apply that today is different. And so instead of going around and kissing everybody, we hug people. We side hug, we bro hug, we handshake, we look people in the eyes and say, man, I missed you, how you doing, love you, good to see you, whatever. So how do we keep this principle Back, go back to the head coverings. How do we keep this principle, the timeless principle, but apply it to the 21st century? What is the timeless truth? Well, there seem to be two. One, that wives submit to their husbands. And two, that men should look, look like men and women should look like women. That's pretty clear in the text. Men don't have long hair. Women don't, don't shave your head. head. Men, don't, men look like men. Women look like women. The reason Paul is bringing all this up is because the Corinthians are bringing their past pagan practices into the church. You see, uh, in Corinth, it was popular to worship a god called Dionysus. Who, if you've been watching the new Percy Jackson series, which I, you should because it's really fun, uh, he is Mr. D at Camp Half-Blood. Um, but Mr. Dionysus was the son of Zeus. But he was the son of Zeus, not from his wife Hera, but from a mortal woman. And this made his wife Hera mad. And so she wanted to kill him. And so Dionysus dressed up and pretended to be a girl so that Hera, the wife of Zeus, could not find him and kill him. So the people in Corinth who worshipped Dionysus worshipped him by cross-dressing. They worshipped him and thought the way to do this is for men to act like women, women to act like men, to cross-dress. Y'all thought that was a new thing. It's not. And Paul is telling the church that God made men and women differently. He made them unique. He designed them to be different and for their, to be glory in different ways, for, in, to be glory in their differences. And so the timeless truth is masculine. Men should be masculine and women should be feminine. And we should not try to dress or be like the opposite. Paul applies that by telling men to keep their hair short. This is taking the timeless truth. Now he's applying it to the first century. Men keep your hair short and women keep your hair long. And if it's not long, cover it up. So the question is for us, how do we apply, how do we take that timeless truth and apply it today? Well, what does it mean for a man to dress like a man, and what does it mean for a woman to dress like a woman? Well, that changes about every five freaking minutes. 
And the problem is, sometimes we try to apply what men dressed like 15 years ago to today. And that doesn't work. Like you can't go to a man, sometimes, you, you know, maybe we could say today, you know, men don't wear skirts unless you live in Scotland. Then it's cool because it's a kilt. I tried to get my wife to sew me a kilt one time. She said no. I thought it would be kind of cool. But men, for the love of God, don't wear leggings. Don't do it. Don't do it. I think I can wisely and appropriately apply that timeless truth in that way. Don't do it. For all of our sakes. You know, I don't want to go into a lot of specific details here telling you how to apply this because what we've got to do is take that timeless truth, men dress like men, women dress like women, and use wisdom, understand our culture, and then apply it in the best way that we see fit. Right? Because what used to communicate masculinity and femininity 15 years ago may or may not today. So the application is always changing based on the culture. But the principle is timeless. The principle being this. Doing things that mask or confuse your gender is dishonoring to God. And so apply this truth to your culture and context and time. That's the first timeless truth. The second is this. is male headship. And back then, how was male headship shown? How did you display that? Well, women had long hair or they covered their hair. Well, no one wears head coverings anymore. And then, uh, a lot of women have short hair. And that doesn't... So, so what do we do with that? If we don't cover our head anymore, what do we do with that? You apply this, not by covering your head, but by showing, taking that timeless truth, submission to your husband, by showing respect and honor to your husband. You don't have to cover your head. You have to just honor your husband by showing him respect and honor. By, in the church, by showing honor and respect to your pastors and elders. And so if you're a man or a woman and you are leading or teaching in the church, do it in such a way that honors those elders. Uh, and don't try to subvert their authority or dishonor uh, the way you teach because you know it's going to be out of step with what they've told you to do. Show respect for the order God has established in the home and the church. Apply that in culturally appropriate ways, which today is not with a head covering. It, however, might be expressed through wearing a wedding ring. It might be through expressed through a wife taking her husband's last name or maybe dressing modestly. But know the timeless principle and apply it in culturally, timely, appropriate ways. Which today is not head coverings, but what is it today? You've got to figure that out. You've got to use wisdom to figure that out. I, I know this is, a, is, a, is a kind of a weird Sunday, kind of a hard teaching, a little, little more uh, trying to wrestle through this text and figure it out together. But I want, I'm thankful that God's word is accessible and clear and good. And, and my hope is that, you know, if this is difficult for you, that you will wrestle with it. Not dismiss it, but wrestle with it in your own mind and heart. And seek to conform your life, not to the whims of culture, what you want to be true, but the timeless truths of the word of God. Uh, let's not be worried about being on the right side of history. Let's be worried about being on the right side of Jesus. Uh, the, the, the Corinthian culture, let me kind of say a couple last things and I'll be done. Uh, the Corinthian culture was one of the most sexually confused societies in history. And that's comparing it to today. It was so messed up that they made the, the noun, Corinth, a verb to Corinthize someone meant to sexually corrupt them. That's how messed up this place was. Sexual promiscuity, homosexuality, transgenderism were all big, all the rage in Corinth. And you know what? Jesus died to save them. Jesus died to forgive them. Jesus died to make them whole. With 
all of their sexual escapades and brokenness. Jesus is up there wagging his finger at them. Jesus is hanging on a cross for them. And now, Paul in this letter is trying to get them, who have clinged to Jesus, to leave their past and pagan practices and follow the way and order of Jesus because it's for their good and their flourishing. When we look at our culture today, it's, it's pretty scary out there. We can look more like Corinth than we want to look like Corinth. But Jesus died to save sexually broken people, of which every one of you in this room belongs in that category. Every one of us is sexually broken in one way or another. And so Jesus died to save, forgive, redeem, and restore you. And now we follow his ways. As he's forgiven us and restored us and he's making us whole, we follow his leading because we know that his ways lead to our flourishing and our good. And so we have to strive to display these two facts. Men and women are different. Don't muddle them to be the same thing. They're different. They have their own unique glory. Don't muddle them. Men and women are different. And also, men and women are equally valuable. They're different, but equally valuable in their differences. If the way you're trying to show distinction actually degrades one of the genders, that's a failure. And if the way you're trying to display equality actually erases distinction, that's a failure too. And so that's what we're striving to do. And we do so with the knowledge that God's word is good. And that his design and order is best. Even when it goes against culture. We want to promote that Jesus died for everyone, for broken people, for sexually broken people. That as he's restoring us, forgiving us, and making us whole, we hold that men and women are different. And men and women are equal in value and glory. Let's pray. Father, we're thankful that your word is true and that it challenges us and that it, it, it corrects us and aligns us uh, so that our lives may flourish and thrive. And what, what we find sometimes, Father, is that the world is telling us one thing and the world says, this is good, this is good, this is the way you should do it. And we find that the, that, that the Bible is just, just a, a little bit different and, and maybe sometimes a lot a bit different, and it pushes on that narrative. And so, Father, would you help us to say, hey, this has always been true. The Bible's always been true. It always will be true. And so th though the pendulum may swing one way in culture, it's going to swing back. We're not going to swing back and forth with it. We're going to hold to the rock that has been steady and sure, the anchor of our souls and even when it's difficult to hold to, even when it seems uncomfortable, we know that this is not here to, to demean us, to demean women, or, or, or to hurt us, or to make us less. It is here for your glory and our good and the glory that you have put in us. So, Father, for those in this room right now who, who are sexually broken and really know it and really feel it right now, Sexually broken because of, of actions they have taken and they feel the guilt and shame of. Or sexually broken because of actions taken against them. And they feel the shame and the guilt of things done to them against their will. Or they're manipulated. Oh, this morning would you remind us 
of a bloody cross and an empty tomb that declares those who have faith in Christ are forgiven, made whole, and restored. And that there is no sexual sin that you have committed or sexual sin committed against you that ever robs you of glory, that ever takes you down a peg, that ever puts you on a plan B life, or ever ruins who you are. Because in Jesus, you have now become a new creation. Being restored and made whole. And the, the evil one wants to whisper and lie to us sometimes and tell us, you're less than. You're second rate. You're damaged goods. But you're not. You're not. Because Jesus' death on the cross tells us, you're mine. And I love you. And I'll heal you. And so, Father, for those in this room right now who are struggling with that in some ways, shape, or form, would you give them the, the courage this morning to, to give it to Jesus and surrender it to him? And say, Jesus, just forgive me and heal me. Forgive the one that did the thing to me and heal me. If you're in this room and you don't know this, Jesus, and you can't even experience that, would you, as we sing the song, I'm going to stand up over here to the left. I just want, I'd love to pray with you help walk with you through that. God, would you help us to hold to your word and hold it steadfastly. We love you. In Christ's name we pray. All people said, let's stand together.